are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week the podcast um, is on a slightly tricky and possibly upsetting topic for some people, so I'm going to tell you now so that you have the chance to turn off and not listen if you believe that this could be um, traumatic or upsetting for you to listen to. I will be talking about a friend who has recently died of anorexia. Um, Okay, so uh, Sarah Sarah was a friend. Um, She was also a client of mine for a little while. And um, I think I started seeing her as a client around June last year, June 2018. And she was just she was always wonderful, to be honest. I mean, she wasn't always wonderful in terms of her health. Her eating disorder was kicking her ass when we first started talking. But she was wonderful in that she was really ready to recover. She was so ready to recover. She just needed to be told that it was okay to eat. Um, and Sarah had had an eating disorder for such a long time. And... She really had, from my perspective, reached that point where she was done and she was ready to recover. And that's a wonderful thing. And that's a gift of a client to work with because all I have to do is tell them what their body's already telling them, which is you really need to eat and you really need to rest. And and Sarah was trying her very best to do that. Now, I'm not saying that she got it perfect and it was a walk in the park for her it really wasn't but she was doing it she she was she was doing it um and um due to a, a number of factors um finances being one of them and knowing what she needed to do being another one uh, we we sort of we only we only had a couple of months worth of um the client sort of relationship and then um session stops and Sarah was getting on with it and we just kept in touch you know um so I I thought of Sarah as a friend who I would email from time to time and say how are you doing and um you know she was always somebody that it sounds so corny to say about somebody who's died but she really was always somebody that would bring a smile to my face even if it was just by email and that that's not true of everybody can't be true of everybody not all the time and maybe it wasn't true of Sarah all of the time. Maybe I'm just remembering the better things because I'm so sad. But that's what I remember. I certainly distinctly remember that whenever I'd see Sarah's name on my schedule, so later that day, I'd just look forward to talking to her. She just really was, even when she was she was unwell, just this you could just see this bubbly personality coming through and even when she was talking about things that were really hard for her it was still there that and and the wonderful thing about one of the wonderful things about my job is that generally people with restrictive eating disorders have fantastic sense of humor and Sarah really had a fantastic sense of humor and often we can find things to laugh about in the shittiest circumstances because when you've had an eating disorder for 30 years, there are so many shitty circumstances. And 
part of, I think, the recovery process is being able, well, for some of us, not for all of us, is being able to find humour to help us work through those shitty circumstances and move on from them. Sarah was just fantastic at doing that. Um, But I probably hadn't emailed with her for three to four weeks. And um, in April this year, I got an email from a friend of hers who thought she should let me know that a couple of days ago, Sarah had been found dead in her flat. Sarah lived alone. She was very close to her family still, but did live independently, lived alone. Um, And that's sort of, I think, all all that she knew at that point. Um, And because Sarah had, I just, I'd had a relationship with Sarah and Sarah's an adult. So I I didn't know Sarah's family. And then um, I sort of stalked and found out through Facebook and, and also through this friend of Sarah's who Sarah's mother was and and I'm not sure why of course I have nothing to offer somebody whose daughter's just died um I think the first thing the very first thing I I really thought I might be able to do was be able to make a podcast um about Sarah and so I wanted to ask their permission for that. And of course, I just wanted to offer my regrets. Um, and I was so happy when Sarah's mother got back to me because I, I kind of almost didn't, I expected her to just be too busy or, or too, yeah, just so must be so much. And I was so thankful that she took the time to get back to me and um, said, yes, I could go ahead and I could make a podcast about Sarah. Um, well, that was in April and gosh, it's way past April now. It's late July. Um, and I, I, I was tempted to do it straight away, but then I also didn't want to make this podcast out of anger, um, or out of my emotion, which was quite high, um, for the couple of days after Sarah died. And that would have been about me and I didn't want it to be about me when it'd be about Sarah. I asked uh, Sarah's mum to put down some thoughts for me. Just anything she might like to be mentioned here. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read out Sarah's timeline um, from what her mother told me. Okay, here's what Sarah's mum wrote to me. Dear Tabitha, following is a timeline for Sarah's life with anorexia and some of my own observations. September 1987, entering grade 9, Sarah began to establish rigid food guidelines in an attempt to curb what she viewed as overeating. It wasn't, she was just 14, only beginning to develop and not yet menstruating. My own note, I just want to interject here, is that um, Sarah's Sarah's mother here can has, has put this note that she wasn't overeating, she was only she was beginning to develop and that she was going into puberty. And I just think this is one of a, such a crucial point for so many people to listen to that it is a natural and entirely appropriate time to gain weight before and during and after puberty. Puberty is a big deal for the body. There's so much that the body has to gear up for and change. And it makes complete sense that a body would store some energy before embarking on those changes. And I think that... All of this, oh, you know, 
eating disorders develop around around teenage years and around puberty. I think that the reason that that is is because when we go into puberty, we are supposed to gain a bit of weight. And what happens, unfortunately, is that weight gain starts to happen and people think that that's not okay. They think that that's abnormal. They think that there's something wrong with them and that they need to diet. That's my little rant over. Anyway, back to Sarah's mother's notes. February 1988, the first hospitalization for anorexia nervosa. Children's Hospital in Seattle. Absolutely no therapy or attempts to modify eating behaviours. They simply insisted on bed rest and only allowed visitors or privileges if she'd gained weight over the previous day. April 1988. Released from Children's Hospital, having gained a minimal amount. November 1988. Placed in a psychiatric hospital for youth, mostly children who were runaways or drug addicts. The only therapy offered was a weekly meeting with a psychologist. January 1989. Released from the psychiatric hospital having gained a minimal amount, Sarah was now in her 10th grade, sophomore year of high school. June 1989. Admitted to the eating disorder unit of Swedish Hospital Ballard in Seattle. Here Sarah was with other young women, mostly teens, and an occasional young man. They participated in group therapy along with family therapy groups, regimented meals, and were weighed on a daily basis. September 1989. Released from hospital and began junior year in high school. October 1989. As Sarah's weight continued to drop, her doctor insisted she not be allowed to attend classes at school, as a consequence of which she was home alone during the day. What brilliant mind thought a 16-year-old girl with nothing to do all day on her own, both parents working, would do anything but obsess over food and exercise and weight? Huge mistake. Sarah missed essentially the entire first semester of school. January 1990, back in hospital on a medical floor to stabilise. March 1990, hospitalisation again. February 1991, back in the eating disorder unit of Swedish Ballard again for an additional two months. June 1991, graduates high school with honours despite missing almost half of her four years of high school. September 1991, begins the University of Washington in Seattle, moves into a single dorm room. April 1993, hospitalised again. Fall 1994, eating disorder unit. Spring 1995, eating disorder unit. December 1995, rushed to hospital, placed in intensive care, severely underweight. January 1996, left the hospital to enter a residential treatment program in Carlsberg, California. July 1996, left treatment, weighing a healthy, never reached before weight. February 1987, back to treatment after allowing herself to fall back into old habits. January 1998, moved to apartment and continued treatment on an outpatient basis. March 1998, graduated from treatment. Early 2000s, Sarah was again treated on an outpatient basis at the residential facility in Carlsbad, California. During the time from 1998 to 2001, Sarah completed her undergraduate work at the University of California, San Diego, though her diploma is from the University of Washington. She then attended California State University, San Marcos, to successfully complete her teaching credentials and her student teaching. Fall 2002, because of her height assessment, Sarah was hired as a full-time teacher with her own fifth grade classroom in California. During her first year teaching, a very stressful position in the best of circumstances, especially as a first year teacher, Sarah fell back into her old exercise and limited eating habits and lost a significant amount of weight. In fall 2003, because of her low weight and compromised appearance, the school was unable to renew her contract. First-year teachers are kept on a probationary basis, and she lost her classroom. 
However, they kept her on as a substitute, and during the second half of the year, she worked full-time as the school librarian when that position became available. It was full-time, but because she was not under contract, she received lesser pay and no benefits. 2004, losing still more weight, Sarah was not rehired at the school and not called for substitute duty. March 2009, Sarah moved back to Edmonds, Washington, to live with her parents. Later, 2009, um, 2010, Sarah lost even more weight and became critical and was transported four separate times to the Swedish hospital, Seattle, for emergency treatment. Each time she was released as soon as she was medically stabilised. February 2012, Sarah was accepted into a residential treatment programme at Reasons Eating Disorder Hospital in California. However, before she could be admitted, she was placed back in Swedish Hospital Edmonds on the psychiatric floor to be tube-fed in order to gain safe enough weight to be transported and admitted. Sarah blossomed during her time at Reasons. She finally had a team of therapists and dietitians who she related to and worked hard to do well with and for. August 2012, Sarah was released from Reasons. Here is where we made a huge mistake. Sarah moved back home to Edmonds. We should have had her stay in the area and continue her therapy on an outpatient basis. So she moved home in glowing health, but it wasn't long before old behaviours slipped in once more. For a time she did well, but then she was not progressing. Both her therapist and her dietitian refused to see her because of liability issues. So Sarah was on her own, no insurance, no therapist and only a part-time job. We paid her expenses, such as apartment, car, because she moved out from our house, but... She really needed more. So for the past several years, when Sarah has been trying to regain her health on her own, a year ago when she found your book, Tabitha, and began sessions with you, she was so hopeful. I suppose it was too little too late, and her body was too compromised after so many years of restricting. During the past several months, she had been attempting to challenge herself on a daily basis with overcoming fear, whether food or activity. She was texting me each morning of what she did the day before. On the morning of April 13th, I realised I had not heard from her. She was dependable to a fault, nor had my husband. I knew that she was scheduled to work at the bookstore that day, so I called them, and when she didn't respond to my call at her apartment. She had not shown up for her shift that morning, something she would never not do. I think I knew then. We didn't know who to call to check on her. There's no one in the apartment offices in the weekend, and we didn't know her neighbours' names. So my husband called the police. It took a couple of hours for them to get back to us with the news that we most feared. To say we are heartbroken is a huge understatement. I think you had enough contact with Sarah to get a feeling for the smart, witty, sweet and wonderful woman she was. Sometimes the tsunami of losing her catches me off guard and I wonder how I can ever stand to go on. I miss her with every breath I take and I know her father, my husband, does also. We are having a celebration for life on Sarah ne with, for Sarah next Saturday at our church here in Edmonds. We have received so many notes from people who are affected by Sarah, from school days, a lot from the treatment times, from work and from church. She was well-loved and also well-liked. I don't know if she ever knew that. Every day is a new day, but unfortunately there are no do-overs ever. Anorexia is a mean, nasty, evil, horrible disease. It took our precious daughter's life and she didn't deserve it. But until insurance companies realise that six weeks or three weeks or six months of treatment is only scratching the surface and that actually years of therapy is needed, and until the so-called experts get their act together and treat anorexia with the seriousness it deserves, there will be more Sarahs and more heartbroken families. With gratitude to you, and wishes for God blessings. So that's, um, you just got a countdown of 32 years of treatment, in and out and in and out of treatment, and the part that... Um, 
really hurts me. It upsets me. Um, and this is not about me, but I'm just going to say what really gets to me about this is that, well, first of all, Sarah was wonderful to work with. She was compliant, very. <laughs> um, and second of all, she really wanted to eat food. And she cried. She cried when I told her it was okay to eat. It was like our first session. And in our first session, Sarah was still following this meal plan that she'd been given, however, God many knows earlier, that was just, it was just this tiny amount of food that whenever I see a meal plan like that, it pains me because I remember what it was like to be, to have anorexia and to be in recovery and to really want to eat but be too afraid to eat. And she's following this meal plan to the T that's just not enough food and she was so hungry and when I told her it was okay to eat more she cried because she was so happy to hear that and somebody who's been in treatment 32 years and she also she told me stories of being punished when she tried to eat more in treatment I actually have a podcast where Sarah talks about that and it's not okay So that's what really makes me angry is that she wanted to eat more food. She was desperate to eat more food, actually. And the other thing is that for 32 years worth of treatment, Sarah had never um, never sort of had neural rewiring explained to her. And I know that that's not, that's not uncommon. Most people don't get neural rewiring. And... But as as her as her mother's account has said, what would happen is she she well, you know sometimes not all the time in treatment, but sometimes in treatment, she'd get the weight up and she'd get her weight up, and then as soon as her weight was up a bit, she'd be out of treatment. And there's no neural rewiring going on there. And without neural rewiring, of course, a person is going to slip back into the 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 autopilot that their brain is when they are not in treatment. And so that's just what happened every time. And, oh, God, should we just go back and count the number of times that Sarah was in and out of treatment, got her weight stabilised and then was out of treatment and then back in it again? It's ridiculous. Why did no, Why is this still happening? Why, uh, why is it not being noted that this is not okay, this in and out of treatment and people gaining weight and then losing weight and coming back in? Something's missing there. And that something that's missing is rewiring. It's changing the pathways, the behavioural pathways in the brain. And once Sarah, and this is another frustrating part, once Sarah understood how to do that, she was really good at it. She got it. And like all of us, she wasn't perfect, but she was doing it. She, she got how to counter those thoughts. She got how to change her actions. And she was challenging herself and she was getting herself going. And like her mother said, it was too little too late. It was too late for Sarah. She'd had over 32 years of her body struggling through severe malnutrition. And um, But Sarah never gave up hope. That's the wonderful part. Sarah really never did. I'll show you. 
This is one of the last emails that I got from Sarah. It was just after Christmas. Um, here's what she wrote to me. A belated Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year. I am grateful for your help. I went home for nine days to visit my family and had the best Christmas I've had in 31 years. I slept in every day. It was so nice to enjoy my mum's home cooking. She made one of my favourite meals, stuffed shells, kind of like lasagna. I ate dessert. After Christmas dinner, we all sat around chatting. In the past, I would have leapt up from the table after eating some sad, bastardized, healthy concoction rather than what was served and stood behind my chair. Weirdo. This year, I lounged. I did not help with the dishes. I ate the dessert my mum portioned. I had fun. None of this would have been possible without your resources. I still have a long way to go, but my life is much better than it was once. One of the most helpful things you've ever said was to eat as though you don't have an eating disorder. That was my mantra. Thank you. Once again, many blessings for 2019. And I replied to that with, this is such a gift of an email to receive. Nothing makes me happier to hear. Well done, Sarah. And um, Sarah replied, thank you, Tabitha. It means a lot to me. I forgot to say that I received several positive comments about my weight. Friends and family could tell I'd put on pounds. In general, I think it's best for people to refrain from commenting on another person's body. However, I personally was relieved because I'm tired of being a burden and sticking out like a sore thumb. It felt good to have made progress. Even reading, I haven't read this. Like I should, I should prepare before I do podcasts. But I actually hadn't read that, reread that email for a while, and just um, even reading it made me smile because I can imagine Sarah saying it. You know, one of the things we talked about a lot was um, the martyring effect that eating disorders have, and the desire to move the whole time. And and one of the goals really was to, you know, if you're at a family meal, you don't have to be the one that jumps up and does the dishes and is always running around. You can sit and you can lounge and you connect with and you can be with other people and you can enjoy that time. And I said that was one of her goals. And um, and also, you know, Sarah, like I, had this the standing compulsion where you'd stand all the time. And, and um, she said that just hated like I did hated having to stand the whole time and wanted nothing more than just to be able to sit and lounge with people but for years like I would she'd stand stand behind the chair eat some weird concoction of food and not join with others and oh, I remember my first Christmas when I was able to actually just relax and so I know what that feels like and I'm just so happy that Sarah had a Christmas like that I'm so happy she wouldn't have had that in her adult life, which is sad. But I think you can see from that email just how how hard she was trying. And she was doing it. She wasn't just trying. She was doing it, you know. And just the small things. And that's what recovery is really about. It's those small things. To be able to sit around and chat to people after eating a big meal. That's just such a wonderful thing. And I never take that for granted. I never do because for so many years I couldn't do that. And I'm just so, so, so proud of Sarah for um, pushing herself to experience that. She was a wonderful person. She really was. And um, the point being, though, that treatment has to change. Because these bright, brilliant people, like Sarah's mother said, do nobody deserves this, but especially not somebody who so very much wanted to recover. 
was trying so hard and putting her everything into recovery. And probably had been for a really long time. But treatment is just so confusing. One moment you're being told, food's good for you, you need to eat a load of food, you're too underweight, restriction's bad. And then the next moment you're being told that having... If you, you, know, you can't actually eat what you want, if, you know, you, you've got to actually repel your hunger. You should eat only the meal plan and eating more than that is binging and that would be awful. Like, it's just so confusing. Which one is it? Is it listen to your body and trust your body and food is safe? Or is it you have to micromanage your body and food could be, is your enemy? Which one is it? Please. Because... While treatment is still giving people these mixed messages, trust your body, eat the food, but not too much. Gosh, watch out. You don't want to gain too much weight. That would be the worst thing that could happen in the world. While that message is still being given, people will continue to die of anorexia, something which is you can recover. People can fully recover. But until they are given the clear message that food is not the enemy and that their body is not the enemy and that gaining weight is not the worst thing that could possibly happen to a person in the world, people will continue to die. And until it, uh, neural rewiring is understood, that it is not enough alone to for an adult with anorexia to get their weight stabilized and expect magically all the neural pathways and behavioral patterns in their brain to magically evaporate and for them to be able to come out of hospital and continue eating and resting and doing the things that they can do, that is ludicrous. 30 years of behaving a certain way, 30 years of certain eating habits and movement habits, and you're expecting that put somebody in hospital for a couple of weeks, force feed them so that their weight's out, and they're going to come out of hospital, and 30 years of neural pathways are just going to be disappeared into thin air doesn't work like that you have to rewire those you have to retrain the brain you and that takes buy-in from the person in recovery and that's why this is so sad because with Sarah the buy-in was always there Sarah always wanted to recover she just needed to know how and nobody 32 years worth of treatment and nobody could tell her that and I know that that's not everybody's treatment story, thank God. But it's too many people's treatment stories. And it's the stories that you don't hear about. And you know what? I doubt that Sarah's death went down as on the record as died of anorexia. I imagine it went down as died of a heart attack. But Sarah died of anorexia. And Sarah had been in treatment for anorexia for 32 years. And the treatment was not adequate. And Sarah died of anorexia. In 32 years of treatment, Sarah had never been told it was okay to eat in the way that she truly desired to eat. She had been told that eating more than her meal plan would be binging and that would be an awful thing. By eating her meal plan and only her meal plan, Sarah was actually complying with what she'd been told to do. And we cannot expect people to recover and rewire a belief system, a belief system that says weight gain is bad and being thinner than you should be is good. If that belief system is in there, as it is with the majority of people with anorexia and other restrictive eating disorders, we cannot expect 
to change that belief system by giving them the message that eating what you want is bad because that might lead to too much weight gain. When somebody has the belief system that they cannot trust their body and trust the things that their body is trying to communicate to them, we cannot expect them to rewire that belief system if we tell them that they cannot trust their body and that they cannot when their body says it wants to eat, that we can't trust them. How can we expect belief systems, which lead to behaviours, how can we expect those core belief systems that are fundamental to a person with anorexia to change if the messages that we are giving are in alignment with the belief systems that the eating disorder holds? I'm so sick of it and I'm I I got sick of being polite about it a while ago and I stopped being polite about it. And I'm getting less and less polite about it, but I've got to the point where I don't know really where else to go with this information. I don't know who else to tell this to because I think it, it's out there now. But people aren't listening to it because treatment providers, their own fear of their own bodies and their own fear of not restricting and their own fear of the quote-unquote obesity crisis stops them from being able to see something that is just so obvious to some and just such common sense that you cannot help a person with a restrictive eating disorder recover by promoting restrictive eating. It's so simple, yet it's so feared. Come on. If you are a treatment provider, and even if you're not a treatment provider, what can we do collectively to try and change this? What can we do collectively to stop people's fear of their own bodies and people's fear of food and people's fear of actually listening to and having a relationship with their bodies and people's fear of being anything other than thin? Because until we can sort that out within the treatment community, people like Sarah don't stand a chance. Sarah, this is for you. It was a pleasure. Such a pleasure to have known you. And one of the things that really keeps me happy is knowing that you were proud of yourself. You were so proud of yourself over Christmas and you were so proud of yourself for the changes that you made. And I was so proud of you as well. Thank you.